In this episode, we chat with Renee Stewart and Rachel Arnold, Senior Managing Directors and Co-Heads of Vista's Endeavor Fund. Endeavor is one of the world's largest tech buyout funds led by women. Both Renee and Rachel were recently recognized by GrowthCap as two of the top women leaders in growth investing. Endeavor seeks to capture the opportunity among high-growth enterprise software companies in the lower middle market. Since launch, Vista's Endeavor platform has successfully raised two funds and now manages over $2 billion, investing in a growing portfolio of innovative businesses with $10 to $30 million in annual recurring revenue. In the past year, the Endeavor team announced several new platform investments, including Scoots, Blueconic, BigTime, Jebit, OfficeSpace, and MedTrainer. Endeavor also realized an investment with the sale of SecureLink. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Rachel and Renee, so glad to have you on the podcast. It's a delight to be with you. It's been some time since we've been running the podcast and we've been focused on software to a degree. We've had a lot of software CEOs on, so it's about time that we had Vista Equity on. This has long been known as the pioneer in software private equity. Why don't we kick off with the Endeavor Fund? Tell us a little bit about the Endeavor Fund and how it relates to the broader Vista firm. Yeah, sure. In terms of Endeavor, I would say at a very high level, we invest in what we call the growth scale stage, which usually happens at around 10 million of ARR. And, you know, I think this is a pretty important stage that's fundamental to both how we invest and how we also add value as a fund. You know, maybe just taking a step back, I think. There actually is magic or or pixie dust in terms of finding product market fit in a business. Like, I don't think anyone has been able to bottle that up and churn it out in a repeatable way. Otherwise, you know, you'd have all these incubators that can just churn out success after success. And I think we all know that even the best entrepreneurs and, and VCs have as many, if not more failures mixed with success. However, I think what we found is once a company has actually found product market fit, that puts them really in this new phase. For us, that tends to be a stage that where things can be a lot more repeatable in terms of what drives success versus failure. Examples would be, you know, actually scaling your go-to-market engine, thinking about pricing and packaging, executive hiring and, and talent development, and you know, building out customer success or professionalizing how you forecast. Those tend to actually be more I think, science than alchemy, <laughs> where there's actually correlation and similarities from one successful SaaS company to the next. Now, it's it's never kind of all the same. They don't follow the same formula, but you can actually find patterns. And Vista is really unparalleled in working with hundreds of companies to really understand and build a pattern match what works well and what doesn't. And, and that's how we ultimately provide a ton of value. And so at Endeavor, I would say we're really looking for companies that have reached that 10 million of ARR where we believe they've found product market fit so that we can help them build on the foundation of what they've already built and, and not have to kind of reinvent the wheel and instead help them shortcut their way to, to creating a world-class, you know, scalable software business. 
And both of you have been with the firm over a decade, I believe. And it's wonderful to see that during your span of time, you've progressed to a point where it culminated in being kind of co-heads of a fund. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and, and perhaps how Vista as a firm was able to enable you to rise to this current position? I can jump in there first, Renate. What's really been incredible about the Vista platform is that it's created opportunities for individuals just like us to take either traditional or non-traditional career paths and build into something that's very unique and differentiated in terms of the offering we bring as it relates to support for CEOs and founders. To Renee's point, the scale and the growth and the expertise that we bring as a firm and as a fund is amplified by the personal experiences we all have and our own perspectives. Personally, I spent the first half of my career, you know, over 20 plus years in enterprise software, the first half as an operator, and then the second half more recently as an investor. And I think it's been kind of that combination of really seeing up close what it takes to make a business successful, plus the backing and the support of the Vista platform that has really enabled me to take on newer and bigger challenges every year and every day. And I think for me, I followed more of the traditional path of starting my career in investment banking, then a short stint in corporate M&A. And then I, you know, I joined Vista 15 years ago, back when we only had a single fund. And as that fund grew, you know, we started a new fund to capture the opportunity in the lower middle market. And I was part of the founding team of that fund. And then as that fund also grew as being part of a growing firm, it actually left a final opportunity for us to start the Endeavor Fund to really continue to invest in what a lot of us consider to be the most attractive part of the, the software market, just given its sheer size as well as the rapid growth within this market. And so it's been a great journey to build a witness Vista's growth over the last 15 years across various different funds and having the opportunity to work across various different funds and, and to start some of those funds uh, on my own as well. When I talk to investors and I ask about certain investments that they've made, there's typically one or two that are very memorable for one reason or another. But I like to ask about those memorable investments and perhaps ones where you and the firm behind you, as well as your immediate team, were able to really impact a company and bring them from where they were to maybe multiple times bigger or more efficient, et cetera? I can talk about one of our early, one of our, I think if this was our second investment, it was the bootstrap business. And we absolutely love working with bootstrap founders because there often is just a lot of opportunity to help them build and grow and invest in, in their business. But let me actually take a quick step back and talk a little bit about one of the areas we add value in, and this then goes and parlays into why we're able to make such a big impact in this business. What we've seen in terms of at the scale stage, really having the right executive team around the table is paramount. You know, having the right sales and marketing leader versus the wrong sales and marketing leader is literally the difference between having stalled growth versus accelerating growth. And I think what we found is for many first-time CEOs, which many founders are, they often don't know what great looks like in a leader. You know, they might think that their sales leader is great because it's the best they've ever worked with, or they were great from the zero to 10 stage. 
Whereas we've seen hundreds of, you know, name your function, <laughs> great leaders. And, you know, not only that, but we're able to, as a larger platform, attract extremely talented executives that a small 10 million revenue business might not be able to attract on their own. And so one of the things that we add a lot of value in, in working with companies, particularly bootstrap businesses, is being able to really help them build out their executive team. And this was definitely the case in SecureLink, which was the second investment that we made out of Endeavor, where it was a bootstrap business, founder run. He did not have an executive team. He knew that he was missing some team members to really help him grow and scale. And within the first four months, we were able to help him add five executives which as you can imagine in this environment, it's extremely hard to kind of recruit so many great executives. And we helped him build out his entire go-to-market engine, both on the sales side, as well as on, on the marketing and customer success side. And, and that resulted in you know the business, which was growing less than 20% a year. I think it was kind of growing in the teens to within the first year, being able to grow over 40% just by bringing on such a world-class management team, as well as helping them build out their, their overall go-to-market engine. And so you know, we love to make impact immediately because the sooner you're able to, to do that, I think the, the more overall value you're able to create for the businesses and the talent all, all around you. There's another investment, RJ, that's currently still in our portfolio, a business called Fusion Risk Management, that also I think is memorable now, it hasn't necessarily ended its chapter with us, but to Renee's point, you know, one of the things that was critical to the founder as they were thinking about a sponsor for the next chapter, they had earlier investors as well institutionally, but they were looking for someone who could also help them hire next chapter CEO. The founder was considering retiring, was looking to diversify his own personal wealth, and also really ensure that there was a team and a, an investor backing that could really support accelerated growth. And when we did customer calls, every customer we talked to raved about not just the product strength and superiority, but also about the, the customer support they received. And as you know, raving customers is such a great sign for expansion and, and capability to both build out the product portfolio, but also grow revenue long-term. It was a business where given the focus on management team and the strength of the product and customer relationship, we really knew we could help. Our value creation process in that business has really kind of come down to three things. You know, first and foremost, supporting the team through the transition of CEO. To Renee's point, we brought in an incredible professional CEO in Mike Campbell, who helped stabilize and build around the existing execs who wanted to stay as part of the transition, and also bring in three very, very strong additional executives where there hadn't been anyone on the management team covering those spots before. So strengthening the team was really important. We also expanded the product base, looking at both the product positioning, adding new functionality and investing in R&D, but also enabling the business to move up market, which we saw as one of the most important growth factors. And then finally, in almost every one of our businesses, given the growth stage where we invest, a focus on go-to-market excellence was really important. And it's something we've seen pay off incredibly since we invested in September 2019 to today. We're seeing phenomenal results out of that growth engine investment. You know, what I think excites us about investments like the one Renee talked about, you know, like Fusion that I just shared, is this partnership with management and this idea that when you have great alignment and bring resources to bear, you, you can truly unlock opportunity. 
Now, uh, stepping back a little bit to the macro picture here, Vista is somewhat synonymous with software investing. And I'm always curious to get people's take on where we are in terms of the maturity of the industry. You know, some will say we're still in the early innings and there's a long runway to go. I'm curious because you're focused on the earlier end. And so presumably that part of the market is probably a pretty big part of the market where there's still software companies being born and in that early phase. So we'd love to get your take on kind of where we are in the software industry. This is actually a topic we're really passionate about, RJ. You know, if we look at the 20 plus year history that we have as a firm, it's very closely mirrored the growth cycle that we've seen in enterprise software. You know, where we started as a firm doing turnarounds really reflected the type of software business model that was in market at that time. If we think about the work, you know, Renee and I did 10, 15 years ago, where we were helping companies migrate to SaaS and to subscription business models, again, that was reflective of what we were seeing in software. And then today, fast forwarding to where the development tools have never been stronger, the innovation cycles have accelerated, global access to computing power has proliferated. We're seeing some of the most impressive software companies, I think that, that anyone has ever seen, be created and get to market quickly, effectively, and, and start to hit the accelerator on growth. And so I think one of the things that we think a lot about is how, as a team and as a firm, we continue to lean into our own learning and growth to think about what's next for software. And that innovation cycle you know, is only going to increase and pick up over the next 10, 20 plus years. And so as we think about not just our sourcing efforts, but also our investment strategies, continuing to stay ahead of the trends that are happening in technology and software, and then pull those through into things like, you know, how we think about growth modeling, product investments, expansion of opportunities, really reflects the fact that we're not doing product rewrites anymore, right? We're seeing clean businesses built for hosted environments with strong subscription models who understand the benefit of gross retention versus net. And all of those things mean that we're seeing better operators and opportunities than historically we ever have. And so I think we're just getting started. I agree with that. One of the signals that I often look at to understand whether or not we're kind of early in the cycle or late in the cycle is looking at a software business's greenfield versus displacement opportunity. So when they're selling to a, trying to sell to a new prospect, are they displacing another product or are they just replacing pen, paper, Excel? And what's incredible is the fact that the vast majority of businesses that Rachel and I invest in, at least 70, 80% of these businesses still have greenfield opportunity rather than displacement. And so that just tells us that there's still thousands, tens of thousands, millions of businesses out there that haven't actually adopted real enterprise software. And I think that's a really good signal for the fact that we are still early and that there still is a ton of opportunity for software disruption over, over the next several decades. I remember a time where most of the software founders were predominantly coming out of the big or notable universities. And then uh, there was a time where the software companies could be coming out of anywhere, any area of the country. In fact, people were going to the less assuming or, or less likely metropolitan areas, where do you tend to find your companies or is it fairly broad-based? I would say that 
We love, and, and I think historically, I've always loved to invest in businesses that tend to not come from maybe the, the Silicon Valleys or, or the New York Cities. And part of that has to do with probably the funding that has usually happened prior to, to when we invest. We tend to really like bootstrapped, capital-efficient businesses. And I think if you're in Cleveland, Ohio, or you know, Atlanta, Georgia, you, you tend to have to be a little bit more capital-efficient because you don't have the access to, to capital that you might have in, in the Bay Area, for example. And then we've also found that those areas, you know, obviously labor costs, which maybe changes a little bit in, in today's remote environment, tend to, to also be a little bit lower. And, and therefore, these companies are able to be more efficient, yet the talent is just as productive. And so we've, you know, historically really enjoyed uh, investing in companies that are based in those locations. I, I think some of that has changed a little bit now, now that many companies are moving to, to remote. And I think even investors now, even, you know, Silicon Valley investors are willing to invest outside of their own little playground, but there still does to seem to, to be some differences. RJ, on the founder question, I think it's an interesting one. Whereas 10, 15, 20 years ago, to be a software founder, you would have studied computer science, you would have worked in a larger software company or been in technology before you spun out to start a software company. Now, what we're seeing is that founders can come from any walk of life, be at any career stage, and just have an insight around a business value proposition. And then using current development tools, as well as, you know, whether it's a development platform, whether it's innovation cycles, whether it's outsourced firms to get a product into market in 6, 12, 18 months. And so it has been interesting to see how that founder profile has changed. I do think that it's also, you know, it's continuing to evolve and it'll be interesting for us to see as we think about investing in software talent, specifically on the developer side as well as really seeing enterprise software pervade every vertical market, whether or not we see even more entrepreneurs in our sector emerge. We expect so. We're coming up on time, but before I launch into my final two questions, we'd like to touch on ESG and DEI. I always like to hear about what different firms are doing, the approaches they're taking, their level of commitment, and feel free to discuss maybe the area that you think is most pertinent or, or the one you most enjoy engaging in? I can touch a little bit on DNI just because it's, I think, near and dear, not just to the firm, but also to Rachel and to me. And Rachel, I may not have all, all the stats, and so help me out if I miss out. But I'd say for Vista, we have always wanted to be the pioneers and leaders in the private equity space around DNI. And it's not a coincidence that our founder is African American and really does believe in, in leveling the, the playing field. You know, when we think about DNI, we think about it both within our portfolio as well as you know, within our organization as a firm. And you know, within our portfolio, we are really leading the charge through external board of directors in ensuring that we have diverse boards across all of our businesses, as well as with our executive hires. I don't have the stats offhand, but but happy to kind of follow up and, and share some of that with you. And then on the actual firm side, I think just recently we have reached 50% gender parity at our firm, which I think is pretty unique in, in what has historically been a male-dominated industry. 
we continue to invest in a ton of programs like co.org and girls who invest to be able to really not just make an impact, immediate impact, but to really see future generations of both developers and on the technology side for software companies, as well as investors that kind of have a diverse background. RJ, on the ESG front, as Renee mentioned, this focus on DEI and ESG comes back to some of our core founding principles as a firm. When we think about the power of enterprise software, and we really think about it as it relates to the transformative power that technology can hold to a better future, whether that's a healthier planet, a smarter economy, a more inclusive community, and, and a broader path to prosperity. And as Renee highlighted, not only do we take that seriously inside the firm, a number of our you know, DEI and ESG programs are rolled out through really effective training, coordination, and support of our portfolio as well. We have kind of focused efforts to ensure that the talent pipeline reflects diversity at each stage as we think about hiring both executives and rank and file employees. We're actually helping train executive teams on how to think about their ESG programs and policies, really help them think forward. And maybe they're doing that work much earlier than they would be doing otherwise, but they're all excited about it because it helps them retain and attract forward-thinking employees, but also really plan for the future and think about the impact they have on their communities. And so it's something we're very passionate about. We don't just talk about it. We walk the walk. And you'll see that in our results. Excellent. These are the final two questions where I ask all guests this, and it gives us insight into more of who you are as people. The first question is, can you tell us about a book that has had a profound impact on you? And if that's too serious, you can just give us a book recommendation. I can go first on this one. I'm an avid reader. And as Renee knows, I like to share books. I've tried to start multiple book clubs inside and work and outside of work because I enjoy the community that comes through sharing great work. And, you know, from a professional standpoint, I'm often known to send some of Patrick Lencioni's books to CEOs we're just starting to work with or that are prospects. You know, very simple frameworks, but extremely effective in everything from fixing dysfunction in a team to running meetings. And so, I'm sure you've had Patrick Lencioni's work come up before, but if I think about some of the core beliefs I have about leadership and driving effectiveness and efficiency, but also really driving alignment and creating a culture of performance, his work stands out for me above and beyond most. And for me, I would say a book that I have recently read that has made a pretty profound impact on me happens to be written by probably a leader that I admire the most. The book is called The Changing World Order by Ray Dalio. And maybe just to talk a little bit about him for a second, you know, I, I think Ray Dalio just has such an inspiring biography. I mean, he's one of the most successful, not just investors, but people in this country and is a complete self-made man and, and is a successful founder of a firm and a, an investor that I think he would take an ultra macro view of the world. And I think his approach really resonates with me. And I, I think it actually resonates with Vista philosophically, because even though we are just quote unquote SaaS investors, we spend a lot of time thinking about macro thesis. You know, we were one of the first investors to really appreciate the beauty and value of software subscription contracts, that the concept of build it once and sell it many times. We were one of the pioneers to transform 
private equity from pure financial engineering to actually driving value through operational improvement. And so, you know, we're not just trying to chase whatever's hot in the market, but to really actually think about big picture and to focus on long term. And Ray Dalio is someone who just thinks bigger picture more than anyone else I know. And, and his recent book talks about trends that happen over hundreds of years, well over just even a human's lifetime. And I think his way of just looking at the world and history through kind of the prism of so the rise and fall of civilization and, and the financial underpinnings of that process is just a really fascinating way of kind of understanding history in a way that I don't think any academics and historians have historically kind of looked at. And what I really appreciate from a guy like Ray is that he doesn't need to sell books to make more money. He's doing this because he wants to give back to society in terms of helping people understand these long-term historical trends and, and learn from them so that we can help America actually avoid the same mistakes of the past. I'm proud that this is able to think big picture and, and long-term. I, I actually think Ray and his book is just a reminder to us how much bigger the picture can get and to really focus on fundamentals versus you know short-term flashes in the pan. It's, it's one of the reasons why I love the work that we do because I think at Vista, we actually can have a real impact in the world by increasing overall global productivity through software. And even though we're only software investors, we touch probably 30 different industries. And as a result, we're able to unleash productivity across all those industries, which at the end of the day can revolutionize the world. And so I just see a lot of parallels of what we're doing versus what he's doing. But I think he kind of almost forces me to like take a step back and, and realize like you got to even think even bigger than, than what we're doing today. So a wonderful answer. And I think you actually addressed my second question, which was a leader that you particularly admire. So maybe I'll, I'll circle back to Rachel. I don't know if your answer would be the same too, as the, the author you mentioned. I'm constantly impressed by the CEOs we work with. In our roles, one of the best parts of the job is that we get to engage with incredible leaders of all styles, of all ages, of all walks of life on a daily basis. And I find it's not just one leader I admire, it's actually part of the job I love the most. And so when I think about leaders that I admire and some of the core attributes, you know, it tends to be similar to Renee, you know, their thoughts on global macro environment and changes and how their company plays into the future of their industry. It also tends to be amazing leaders who put their missions ahead of individual decision-making, a term we affectionately call desire to win outstripping ego. And finally, you know, really incredible leaders who see what is possible for their employees and their customers, and they bring that to life. Again, it's my favorite part of our role as investors and as supporters of CEOs and founders, and I can't find just one. They're all amazing. Well, Renee and Rachel, I want to thank you again for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thanks so much, RJ. Thanks for having us. Thank you.